0: To biota.org chat this evening I'm chatting with Bruce Damer about a number of topics Bruce you're one of the many people that I receive emails about in terms of people thoroughly enjoying previous conversations and chats and it's been put to me that every conversation I have with you in the future should be recorded and put out in a podcast so it's a a real privilege to have the opportunity to chat with you in the biota feed well
1: thank you Tom it's it's an honour and a privilege To
0: be back in touch. One of the things that I found fascinating, this is a recurring topic that comes through uh, our own uh, conversations and and formally in the Biota feed, is the idea of what the popular view is of contemporary artificial life. Uh, I recently interviewed David Van Nuys for this podcast and talking with him both prior to and after the interview, it occurred to me and David lives in the Bay Area, he consults for Apple, Hewlett Packard, these kind of companies. He's computer savvy and sort of artificial life curious. But his views with regards to artificial life I would still say are probably early 90s at best. And there's some question with regards to kind of communicating contemporary artificial life to even folks like uh, David Van Nuys who are interested in artificial life. Have you had any thoughts on that since our last chat?
1: Well, I've I've kind of watched for signs of life in MMOs, you know, massive multiplayer online environments, because I think that when we start seeing lifelike or artificial-like, lifelike processes going on, in some of those spaces it will really communicate to a new generation uh, a concept for it, at least. So there's been this very, very simple experiments done in Second Life, which really are, to my mind, more responsive agents. And then, of course, we're waiting for Will Wright's Spore, which, as you've pointed out, is now delayed into 2008.
0: At least Linden Labs have used the term artificial life in their press releases associated with what they're trying to do in, in Second Life. But I think my own reflection is that you and people like John Daigle are eternal optimists with regards to the nature of companies like Linden Labs and potentially other games companies stepping up to the plate and starting to represent artificial life in their in their systems. But my view, increasingly, is that artificial life developers themselves should think very proactively about how they communicate either their own artificial life or the artificial life community as a whole to things like local media outlets, these kind of things, to kind of proactively get artificial life back into the spotlight, but also get eyes back on actual artificial life projects as opposed to these kind of secondary and tertiary implementers. What's your thinking on that? I actually have come to a conclusion that, that I, I really completely agree with you. So it's good to agree, agree with your interviewer or your interrogator. Uh,
1: but in the sense that if even back in the active world, sort of first-generation virtual world of the mid-'90s, all you could do in the platform was do simple scripts with simple bots. And if you look at the second life grid and the architecture there, one of the things that, that, that restricts it as a medium for artificial life is that it's clocked to the human experience. So everything is optimized so that users get the same sort of view of the baseball as it's coming. Uh, they see the scene update okay. Uh, and it's clocked for, for human attention spans. Whereas, as we know, as both of us know from years of experience, artificial life systems. Uh, if you're going to do artificial evolution, they need to be clocked as fast as possible. They're not; shouldn't be restricted to uh, frame rates for the for the human gaze. Uh, and In fact we allow it to run at the the, the the rated speed of the environment. So there's a there's a discontinuity between scripting languages that generally support. Uh, Objects and interactions in virtual worlds, server-based, client-server-based interactions, and there's a a big discontinuity between that very slow speed and user-bound experience and the needs of a true artificial life or hyper-evolution system.
0: So you're, in fact, agreeing with me on on a number of levels, but mainly with regards to computation itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you looked at at Tierra, you know, if Tierra had... Back in back in the day I mean 15 16 years ago uh, if it had been something that was a user based you know see the see the creatures uh, interact with them I don't think Tom would have taken it to the level that he did and at the same time of course Carl Sims uh, swimming blocky creatures uh, ran offline pretty much in the simulated physics uh, for long periods of time using the connection machine processors uh, and then he was able to sort of dip in and see the, the forms that came out. So both of those systems were lights-out, offline processes with occasional look-sees rather than interactive worlds.
0: And reiterating the, the David Van Eyze interview, he also said to me in a section that I edited from the broadcasted interview that he thought that the avatar community and the artificial life community could come together or should come together. And what fascinated me was that this disconnect wasn't just with regards to the history of artificial life as it leads towards contemporary artificial life, it was also with regards to all these kind of ventures and avenues that are coming together uh, that touch on aspects of artificial life. So I don't know whether the issue is communicating through the likes of, of Linden Labs and Second Life and potentially Spore or whether we need to kind of hybridise the way in which we get the message out. What I like in particular with the Carl Sims' Blocky Creatures is it lives on to this day through John Klein's Breve. I've installed the Breve screensaver on every machine I have access to, and it really is just a, you know, a living, breathing version of uh, Carl Sims' Blocky Creatures that, as you say, has uh, background iteration in terms of the, the evolution. But these ideas still live on through this contemporary software. What's your thinking with regards to actively communicating these things that we, you know, we hold so central to what we do to the broadest possible community?
1: Well, I think that just going back to the the Labs example, the London Labs, um, Labs hired Jeff Ventrella, and of course, as we know, Jeff is sort of a great early creator. In the artificial life field. And um, he was, one of his tasks was going to be to do sort of virtual pets or do artificial life, something biologically inspired in in Second Life. And uh, his last correspondence with me was Other priorities have come up. So, in a sense, I think that says it all. You know, the business climate of, of multi user venture funded platforms is such that there isn't really much. For experimentation. There's an experimentation period in the beginning of the architecture, a little bit. You're allowed to go a little bit beyond uh, where prior platforms have gone, but then you have to start cracking up the user numbers to keep your your investment rounds coming in. So, A, there's the rub.
0: Well, this rolls perfectly into the discussion of Spore, because as I was kind of researching this chat, News came across the wire that Electronic Arts is, in fact, divided into four separate sections. One of the sections is called The Sims. And in creating this section, they identified that The Sims and related intellectual property, which I'm assuming refers to SimCity and SimAnt and things, had netted Electronic Arts more than a billion dollars. Spore, and Spore's been delayed until, well, they said mid-2008 initially, and now it says it could be until 2009. But Spore is coming out in the EA Games section, so it's not, it's not coming from the Sims subsection. All Will Wright's games to date, the Evolution Stability component, the component where you're trying to stabilise the system, is the user-interacting component. That's the part that you're trying, to, you know, you're trying to fix the city or you're trying to get the ants to do whatever they need to do or these kind of things. Or in the sims, you're trying to you know, make sure that your sims are, are fed and watered and washed and these kind of things. And Spore moves that away from the user experience. The actual simulated ecology, if there is such a thing in Spore, is all done behind the scenes, but it's also fundamentally artificial life knowledge and what fascinates me about Spore is it has 70 developers working on it currently, which puts it in the same size as Linden Labs. And they appear not to have, and I've tracked the people that have worked on Spore. Your friend at uh, University of Southern California has had some touch with, with the Spore folk. Have you had any uh, communication with him recently?
1: Actually, um, that's Todd Formansky, and yeah, I think he was offered a job in the group but declined it. And now he's uh, applying for the doctoral program at, uh, at, at USC. There's sort of a new doctoral program that's coming for games. He works for Bill Vi- Viola. or Viola. And from from what I've seen, I mean, the, if anyone can do something well and bring a concept to the masses, it's Will Wright. And I remember having dinner with him, I think it was at Computer Game Developers Conference in 99 or, or 2000. And uh, he really loved biota and he'd actually wanted to go to digital burgess but just couldn't he'd, he'd heard about it through the grapevine and he talked to me a little bit about uh, the sims uh, which hadn't come out yet but that beyond that he wanted to do something to do with an evolution game uh, so certainly if, if anyone can do it he can the fact that it's delayed it's such a large team and a large outlay and it's delayed so long it's quite a bad sign we, we need not look Too far in the past to see the the Sims Online and how that was cost overrun. And when it came out, Um, because it didn't meet its numbers, it was split out as a division or a sort of separate accounting element to sort of protect the rest of EA uh, before it was shut down. So, you know, Spore may or may not have the same fate awaiting it. But, um, Tom, is it it your understanding that, that Spore? Kind of is just sort of procedural parts rather than the, the true, true artificial evolution or true simulated evolution.
0: This is an interesting thing because Will Wright has very carefully not used the term artificial life to describe what he's doing in Spore. And he has looked back to the demo scene groups in Scandinavia and Germany and they describe what they do as procedural but it's not the same kind of thing as procedural movement as you would see in Carlson's Locky Creatures, for example. So I think there's a a certain disconnect between the terminology that Will Wright says publicly and what he actually has to do in Spore. But what fascinates me is the people that he's getting involved with Spore. Now, Game Development Circle's very good about broadcasting when people join certain teams, and this is why I wanted to ask you about Todd Formansky because I know another one of Toczka cohorts, Chenova Chen, has said publicly that he's both worked with Real Right and hasn't worked with Real Right with regards to Spore or aspects of Spore. But the way I see Spore currently is, it, does, it's, it seems to be lacking certain parts of the puzzle about how you would create this kind of game. And the people that he has gotten involved on a high level, people like Chris Hecker, I believe his name is. Do you know Chris at all? Uh, he, he was a fellow who I saw at, I think, a SIGGRAPH, but he goes to all the game developer conferences and he rallies academics to start working with the game development community. And certainly in recent discussions, and I've talked about this in Ape reality it's on the front of the Ape reality page for anyone who's interested, with regards to Genova Chen's flow and Jeffrey Ventrella's work and all this kind of concatenation in terms of the artificial life community and the game development community there seems to be a need for people that have fundamentally artificial life-like skills in terms of creating uh, stable evolving ecosystems and when i say evolving i'm not talking necessarily about genetics but i'm talking about something which is visually evolving and that just doesn't seem to be in the the sport team currently i think there is a certain kind of reflective uh, nature to developing artificial life systems particularly long-term artificial life systems that requires a particular kind of mathematical knowledge, but also a particular kind of tinkering. And my real concern with Spore is that it seems to be very good to give short demos, but if you're playing a game that just has so much diversity, the first question is how do you test it effectively? But within that, how do you actually create it so it doesn't need iterative testing? He's used, Will Wright's used in his kind of media briefs, the number 79 years in terms of just the amount of content that people could play through and explore. And that seems to indicate that there needs to be a little bit more than just procedural techniques in creating the environments and creating the interactions. And whilst what Will Wright appears to be doing is very similar to all his previous games in terms of just setting up very simple interactive games at a number of levels that have some sort of feed genetics between the various sections but are in fact robust standalone tinkering games there still seems to be a need for this what i would call artificial life like if not pure artificial life technology uh, which isn't procedural at all it's in fact very long-term appreciation for you know twiddling dials and kind of old science which just doesn't seem to be represented in the folk on the high level that he has working with him on spore and I think you
1: can see this dynamic. It, uh, amazingly enough, uh, Biota 3 in 1999, the whole theme was the convergence of artificial life and the gaming community. You know, our hosts for that event were Rudy Rucker and Bruce Sterling, who brought a good science fiction vision to it.
0: Was that 3 or 4, Bruce? I thought that was 4.
1: That was 3 in, at San Jose
0: State. Oh, OK. I have the video footage of 3, and I thought it wasn't until 4 that The game folk got involved because there weren't any, there weren't any game folk in three as I've seen the video.
1: Well, there was one company that had this video. Uh, they had some some canned video of the game they were developing, and all these creatures were basically running around bashing each other's heads, and and um, people were either laughed or, or uh, they, uh, laughed uproariously or horrified depending on how they were, but. Um, then, of course, uh, Tom Ray talked. And what was interesting is that the um, math lab people were there, and they provided you know, physics engines for games, and they met Tom Ray. And as a result, his virtual life project happened in Japan. And I don't know how far that got. I got a CD of it, but it was basically Tom doing Carl's creatures using the math lab engine. So it was an interesting hybrid that came out of an event that was ostensibly trying to bring the old line tinkering artificial life into the new line of game engines and, and putting it in front of game developers. But 99 was pretty far back. I mean, you had EverQuest out at that point. But um, that was an attempt an attempt to do that.
0: I think contemporary game development is scared by the freedoms that you see in contemporary artificial life. And in terms of producing... I think, and I've said this in the past in the the Biota feed, contemporary game development is very much the Hollywood model, and whilst you have cycled version releases occasionally, you see that with Second Life and you see that with World of Warcraft, so maybe it is applicable to games that use Artificial Life themes, most games are pretty well hardwired purely to get them out in a specific time frame and get them done with specific kinds of testing. And my concern with regards to Spore is that what Will Wright wants to do is he wants the best of both worlds. He wants something that is stable but evolving visually, and yet he also wants something that will fit into a traditional game model. And
1: here, here's, I think, where we can go to a, on to another topic I know we plan to cover, which is the example of Steve Grand and Cyberlife. Because, of course, from my understanding, Steve tinkered for years, you know, in, there in the West Country, um, creating creatures' brains, basically, and did a lot of the tinkering, and then it got embedded into the CyberLife game, was commercially successful, but the personality of Steve Grant and the kind of approach, the sort of long-term visionary approach, uh, led to him not continuing with the, with the business side of things, and then he went on to uh, go back to his sort of tinkering, invention lifestyle. So, and, of course, you've, you've had some more recent contact with him, but maybe Steve is, is the embodiment of the, of the contact of these two worlds and these two approaches. I,
0: I, think, I think you may be perfectly right there. The difficulty I've had with Steve is he's recently moved to Louisiana, and his telephone contact has been very, very sporadic. My aim and it still continues to be an aim, is to interview Steve for the feed and do, hopefully, an extended set of interviews with him. Because I think on a number of levels, his experiences and his insight, particularly with regards to closed-source commercial ventures, was very useful in, in this kind of evangelism part, which seems to be missing from contemporary artificial life. It was very useful for him to have sufficient cash to actually pay scientists to write papers and you know drum up support in the kind of popular science media i know with darwin at home you had a little window into that two three years ago now but the ability to have someone like steve's insight in terms of how you get now what is a majority of open source projects that have very small very loyal communities and move that into something that becomes part of popular consciousness again i think will be a fascinating interview well
1: one of the things um one can sort of read between the lines to divine this is, uh, is Digital Biota 2 in, in Cambridge in uh, in 98 because here we had it was very an, inter- it was an interesting confluence because we had a conference that was on the banks of the River Cam in Cambridge at Maudlin College very academic and we had Chris Langton there and we had I'm not sure if Tom was at that one but we had a good solid representation of the sort of the tinkerer-inventor research community. And then we had it sponsored by a company that had come out of a, an inventor methodology. And you had Chris Winter, who had been hired there. or Chris Winter actually came from British Telecom, and he, he was a very, very research-oriented guy. He later was hired by CyberLife, and it didn't work out at all. He's, they, I think that he kind of didn't fit or was sort of in a corner doing his own thing, but they didn't know what to do with him as they probably didn't know what to do with Steve after a time. So at that event uh, were all the elements of the merging of these two communities, but the, the, the result of that event was CyberLife and Steve split, and Chris went to work there ostensibly to bring them some more vision from research, but it didn't happen, and I guess they had another version of the game or so, and then Steve uh, split as well. So doing it again in in 99 with DB3 uh, was trying to bring it to the Bay Area and closer to the game development, uh, closed source but high-octane and funded world. Uh, So in a sense, Digital Biota 2 was sort of a first attempt at this, whereas Digital Burgess uh, in, in 97 was totally blue sky and bringing the communities of paleontology and, and computer science in this in, in artificial life together without really regarding games at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I'm hoping to capture in the Steve Grand interview is both the initial vision, which I think is critical, but also, and this is something Chris Langton, I mean, there are just so many names now associated with artificial life that are so difficult to contact. They're so difficult to kind of you you see them at certain segments where they're either writing or where you have recordings of conferences but it's the kind of intimate connection in the movement which is now completely lost and what fascinates me with the opportunity to have a relatively candid but also possibly recorded I've given them the option both ways initially is just the ability to see some of that insight come into play in a, a real time environment
1: my experience in, in the sense of Chris Langton here's maybe this is sort of an indication of Chris here is Chris visionary wrote some of the code as our listeners know for some of the first artificial I coined the term uh, I guess he co-edited or edited the journal on the first conference back in the 80s co-founded Santa Fe Institute created the lab to create swarm all these things and in the end utterly embittered uh, in, in a battle with, uh, I guess, Stuart Kaufman. It's funny, when he was he was here visiting, I think it was just about the time he split from SFI, and, and he said, well, Chris Kaufman, and this this goes back to sort of competition in the research field, so Chris Kaufman, uh, Stuart Kaufman, rather, goes out and gets big-time funding from various agencies to continue his work, and uh, here's Chris who actually helped found the field, and in a sense attracting Stewart into it. Uh, in in the in the deepest, steepest, severest competition that only academics can create for themselves. He's totally left out. And he's asked by somebody, you know, what are what are your assets? You know, why why should we invest in your swarm project? And Chris's answer was, Well we have a refrigerator in the lab. You know, that's probably our biggest asset is our fridge. And I sort of thought, gee, you know, even even within the halls of academia, and certainly progressive academia, as SFI was seen, Santa Fe Institute, um, there was such blinding uh, competition and backstabbing that this great visionary guy and very sensitive guy uh, got burned out so utterly on the field that he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. And I, I, I get concerned that maybe it, it's almost like these very brilliant lights attract these great people that are also very fragile and they have some great genius and they contribute something to it and it burns them out in the process and they sort of left as a, as a as a as a piece of ash floating away but i hope i hope steve isn't, isn't in such a state well i
0: i hope so as well i mean i think all all personally i can learn from these people and this is something that r- r- comes up semi-frequently when I get emails about the artificial life hobbyist community and why the artificial life hobbyist community has kind of maintained whilst aspects of the artificial life or the historically artificial life academic community hasn't. And that's that we've all had other jobs, that basically we can do artificial life as a hobby that we're, we're passionately involved with, perhaps you know as, as other tinkering hobbies people can be passionately involved with, but it's never our primary source of income. Most of the time, it's never even our tertiary source of income. It's just something that we have a passion about that we can continue developing and avoid all this bitter nonsense associated with academic institutions and companies and money and things like that. And what I'm interested in picking Steve Grant's brain about in particular is whether he thinks there is any way that these things can be resolved whether you can take intellectually passionate, potentially academic folk and put them in a commercial environment which is self-sustaining and nurturing and I think this is really the, the legacy question with regards to artificial life whether that, that, that is in fact possible My gut
1: instinct is that it would be an extraordinary set of coincidences that would make that work but in, in truth You know, again, if you look at Jeff Ventrella, you know, I when I made the presentation up at Linden Labs last October, had pretty much the whole company there, including Philip Rosedale and Jeff uh, Jeffrey in the room, and one of the things I was bringing up all the history and the timeline of Virtual Worlds and how Second Life is positioned in in this sort of maybe mainstream early adoption, Uh, maybe successful, maybe not, and said one of the things you can do to attract and keep users in this platform is the Tamagotchi, the, the nerve garden, the, um, you know, the creature. You can create these biological metaphors and create a whole new user population that will spend a lot of time in the platform, virtual pets and whatnot, but you have to do a really good job on them, um, even if they're just kind of very good. Sim- there's no artificial life. It's just they're very biologically inspired. And pointed over to Jeffrey, and I said, "I suppose this is why this gentleman sitting here and Jeffrey will bring this to you." And I remember seeing Philip saying, "Yep, that's that's why we, you know, Jeffrey's on board." And of course, um, other priorities come up. Uh, in fact, in the, the last iteration of sort of presentations, uh, were done. One of the uh, events Philip uh, spoke and said. With very, very... He was just a group of teachers, educators, using Second Life, which is quite a substantial audience. And, and Philip kept going back to the, the same question. Are you guys buying objects in-world? You know, i.e., not buying them off of a website or acquiring them from a free service, which there are many, but are you buying them in-world? And my teacher, educator friend, came to me right from this conference and said, hey, I'm getting wind of, an, of, a, of a shift at Second Life, and that they really are having to drive their revenue inside. They're starting to get pressure from their investor. And in that climate, man, there's just no way to do things that are experimental or long-term or require careful, careful thought and very, very careful architecture. There's no calm in those waters.
0: I've gone back and listened to our chat on open source, because a lot of that was prefaced with regards to Linden Labs releasing their client open source. And what struck me from that is, is, as you say, this amazingly fragile set of circumstances which can kind of ebb and flow and turn for the worst very quickly. And it really personally saddens me that someone with the intellectual capacity and insight that Jeffrey Ventrella has cannot be used for that as opposed to, I, I don't get a clear indication of what he's doing with them, but I'm assuming it's all hands on deck with regards to coding and other necessities. It's, I guess, an ongoing question, I think, for all artificial life developers about where this technology will reside in a self-sustaining fashion. I, I have a clue. Um,
1: I have a clue as to a, a potentially new funding and research area that I could share with the podcast, if you like. Certainly. Certainly. As you know, digital space has been funded by NASA for about seven years, in the last four years of which we've developed an open-source framework, whole platform that does rovers on the moon and spacecraft and good uh, high-fidelity physics. It's um, all real-time simulations for NASA to use for mission design, concept design. And believe it or not, back in the fall of 1994, when I was driving randomly around Western North America visiting people like Chris Langton, uh, the concept that I had was I wanted to create some kind of unofficialized system that would run in a real-time 3D environment. And this was back in when Windows 3.11 was the operating system you got when you ordered your new Dell. And you barely had uh, 3D game cards at that time. And I actually wrote some code called NERVS, which was a finite state machine, I, I think a fairly good one, an efficient one, back in those days. Uh, it still runs today, believe it or not. Todd Fermansky actually worked on it two years ago. But the idea was I had a, I had a, a branch point. It was no, I remember in November of 94, I was set up in my little lab in the Redwoods, and I said, you know what, I could sit here and I could code and try to code a 3D platform to put nerves into because it could be the basis for a really cool artificial life experiments. Um, or the risk with that is you code for about three or four or five years and, and you Tom know you know the, the price that it extracts and then you've spent so much of your energy putting out the platform then other things have come out at the same time, other technologies have emerged, other three D engines, whatever. You come out with your platform, you get a user community and you're kinda of pooped out. And your experiment uh, kind of ends uh, for a period of time before you can, maybe you can get a user community. And yours is it's continued virtue of uh, Intel and, and, and Apple. Um, so I decided to take the second road, which is to build organizations instead of building code. So the organization included the contact consortium, Biota, and Digital Space as a corporation. And after all these years, this is 12, 13 years now, we have an open-source 3D platform. Uh, I'm having the guys in Australia look at taking nerves and putting it in there, and I don't know if it's a, a very good state machine, but it's something at least I know because I wrote it, and it builds and runs still. And my hope was that later this year we would actually start to go out and propose artificial life-type use of the platform funded by the taxpayers through NASA. To do things such as, and consider this, you've got a robot system. Um, One of the missions that NASA is actually looking at doing is a mission to an asteroid. And I've been part of the team um, based at Johnson Space Center and Ames that's been looking at how to go to an asteroid. And before you send people to an asteroid, you've got to send a lot of precursor robotic missions. The problem with asteroids is there's almost no gravity. So it's like the problem that insects have on Earth. The problem insects have on Earth is not that they that it's tough for them to fly around. It's tough for them to stay attached to things. They're, they're always being blown off. Well, on an asteroid, uh, the problem with robotics is how to move around in low gravity. And we actually don't have any experience in, in doing good low-gravity low robotics. So one of the concepts we had was supplying for grants to actually do uh, Carl Sims style evolving of robot designs and putting them in a simulated low-gravity asteroid environment, all with all the bumps and surface crumbling and surface properties that we think asteroids have, and running an experiment to iterate through millions of walking postures and hold-fast attachment postures and hopping postures, so that you could actually create in an in industrial sense, in a sort of a very you know, way out there type mission, an industrial example of artificial life being used to, to aid in engineering concepts. A whole different type of funding uh, could be attracted to, to such a project and a different level of attention. So instead of the game space, it's, it's the engineering space. So what do you think about that one?
0: Well, two things. Firstly, again... I implore you to reach out to Jonathan Klein, as he is the contemporary holder of the, the kind of Carl Sims legacy with regards to blocky creatures. But I've always, and you kind of touched on this with regards to Apple and Intel, I've always thought that what I call the industrial stream of artificial life development and the industrial symbiosis is the only current productive way forward. In my own development, you've touched on it briefly. I look at it on three layers. I have a kind of personal interaction with the code, which I find very refreshing and reflective. And I have a user base which is relatively communicative. But then, in addition to this, as you've noted, I have these two large corporations that are willing to invest well, on an annual basis probably about three man months, either combined or uh, individually, depending on what they want, into the source code and that is amazing. It's completely non-financial. I did get a slight discount on an Intel Mac recently, but it is purely based on intellectual interaction, editing source code, feedback, communication, and that's been an amazing driving force. Now, if I want to take a step back with regards to sources of funding, the thing that always strikes me talking to you, Bruce, is you have an amazing slew of contacts that you kind of develop and cultivate through your various movements and interactions. And what strikes me is that we share a number of contacts, and these are people who I would never have thought of with regards to funding sources. But just prior to formally starting the recording, you mentioned that you were going to be meeting with Paul Allen in September with regards to another project. And I feel that there are probably a group of individuals who are equally capable of funding even small projects for a medium term, and Paul Allen strikes me as being one of those people. My concern with regards to state funding in the US is just having talked with Roy Plotnick. You get a sense that US government funding, NASA funding as well, is precarious in some regard, which philanthropic funding shouldn't necessarily be as precarious in the short term at least. And I think looking at the Steve Grand example, I mean, the thing that ultimately killed Creatures Labs was a lack of, or a dependency in some regard, on public funding. So whilst I see public funding as being possibly part of creating this, I see there being either a need through private user funding or angel funders as well in order to give this thing a degree of stability to percolate. What's your own thinking with regards to that?
1: Well, I can tell you uh, my own path has been... Uh, Digital Space did a number of commercial projects, uh, and we were hired by Adobe to help them with Atmosphere, which is a 3D platform they developed in the early earlier 2000s. And when we started on our government funding, uh, came largely from NASA and some of it from the NIH and it was through the SBIR program, which is Small Business Innovation or Research, and through direct grants from agencies like USRA, which is a sort of university-affiliated program of NASA's. And what was interesting is as long as we had relevance within a certain NASA center or two and we had chief scientists who believed in what we were doing, we just pretty much got a continuous stream of funding And we were able to maintain seven or eight full-time people. And to this day, we we still have that very good 3D development, a couple of 3D developers in Australia, your homeland, in a sense. And uh, so it is possible. But I can tell you, we're now seeking funding through the European Union, ESA, European Space Agency. I can tell you that the only way that you can maintain consistency in that game and, and in the sense of being a small business rather than a bunch of individuals. You have to, have to be some kind of a corporate entity. It's for one bloke, and in this case it's me, uh, to go out and constantly maintain the relationships with the government agencies, the program managers, the, the scientists, and writing proposal after proposal after proposal and administering them and making sure you win them, in, the, in the, the right order so that you can do your larger Phase two grants while you're winning new Phase one grants and you have things overlapping. And you can only do this also is if you have tremendously low overhead um, and that everybody's working, certainly not at Silicon Valley salaries. Um, but you can still have the full-timers. And I even have built into all these projects monies to hire uh, graduate students at universities and to hire advisors, some of which are Apollo astronauts, uh, which for our lunar program was very, very helpful. So you can do it. Uh, You need to have a champion who knows the business side, the human relations side, to haul in those dollars on a regular basis. And from my perspective, I'm getting a little tired uh, of it. It's been six or seven years now. Uh, It just tires you out. Uh, I started... uh, in this whole life back in the 80s as a programmer, and as you talk about your relationship with the noble 8 code, I get all this nostalgia and and downright envy that I don't have the time to have relationship with code, which uh, was kind of my creative medium starting in the early 80s. Uh, but I have a relationship with the, the contracts and the invoicing schedule. Uh, so and I'm able to go and look at the code that Peter Newman produces, uh, the Digital Spaces code. But it is possible to do over many years with great consistency. Um, you have the same problem of wearing people out as hobbyists get worn out and people in commercial ventures get worn out. You have a, you have a half-life on, on any of these enterprises. My hope for digital space and the platform is that somehow uh, we'll find an artificial life theme that will keep me excited about it enough, to go out and continue to raise the money to have the team members or expand the team uh, and continue to, to invest in the platform. It's a very good platform for space uh, missions and it should be a good platform for artificial life. But how to how to get there and not uh, not have me go through another uh,
0: seven years of uh, writing proposals? I concur entirely. In fact, if you weren't going to say it in the interview I would have prompted you with regards to your proposal writing time and the immense kind of emotional frustration. It seems like every time we actually meet on location somewhere, this seems to be the the primary topic of conversation. Through my own experiences, I was connected with... You mentioned the Tamagotchi. I was connected with Bandai independently for a period of time with regards to creating uh, intelligent, evolving creatures, which could become the next generation of the Tamagotchis. And towards the end of my development with that, I met with a team that had been solely funded by the creator of the Teletubbies, whose name escapes me. And she had funded a team of, I think, eight people for two and a half years to develop the next generation of Teletubby toys, which were going to be very similar to the uh, kind of uh, creatures that I had developed independently for the likes of Bandai. But what fascinated me about their company, although they were in the process of winding down through lack of actual development product was that it is possible to have I'm sure some combination of corporate government and angel funding in order to bring this thing together and if you were to have a dream angel funder what kind of characteristics would that angel funder have and do you have any sense that you should really be approaching angel funders
1: well, that's a very good question well, since we know that uh, a mutual acquaintance, uh, Captain Crunch, uh, also worked at Autodesk, uh, we know about John Walker's uh, funding of, of Ted Nelson uh, in the Xanadu project. And to some extent, uh, for a period of time, of course, Walker was a, was a very good angel funder for what Ted was trying to do, but it couldn't survive inside the, the corporate environment. But certainly for, for, for my dream funder, would be literally someone who said, "Look, it's very much like Buckminster Fuller's original idea back in the 1930s." That, and in his very utopian thinker, sort of by definition, is a utop, the utopian thinker of that that time, he said that for very confident, capable, inventive minds, but that they should they should work their little rear ends off in whatever career they've chosen, but in their early 40s, when when they've You know, really contributed to society what society has given them. Society should recognize them and create then, which was a lot of money, a million dollar endowment that would be administered for their benefit and create annual income to support them for the rest of their days, kind of like a trust, uh, sort of like a trust. Uh, And but that they're commissioned to uh, go back and do their creative works now that they have experience of the real world. And I always struck me as being that would. Been an incredible uh, thing to do. So perhaps the the ultimate angel would be someone who said, "Look, I'm going to create an endowment, and it's going to be enough to support your living needs. You know, your fa- if you have a family, your family, it's going to be a competitive salary, but it's going to free you up to do the research that you need to do over the long term, not over two years or five years, but decades, and that." You can come to the endowment if you have needs for travel and things like that, as long as it's associated with your research. And you have no obligations. You know, you should be doing your research, but you don't have obligations to publish if you don't feel you're ready to publish. Uh, but we believe in you, and, and uh, this will create something for humanity. And such an endowment today might be, you know, only if, if it's earning conservatively, it might be... You know, four or five million dollars really, realistically, would support somebody uh, for for a lifetime, properly invested. So, if a Paul Allen or someone like that said, "Well, that's a great idea," or Warren Buffett, you know, and he said, "I'm just going to create a hundred of these, a hundred of these endowments, like the MacArthur Genius Grants, but that continually give, and um, you know, have a committee, whether it's." Who chooses, of course, uh, and find some of these people, but but really be, you know, it's long term because I think the artificial life phenomenon uh, is something that is going to require for something to really uh, really be achieved. It's going to take decades and decades of dedicated work that's actually handed off from one generation of people to the next, and and well well well-regarded experiments, very well documented. a, a, a community that, that just decides to take this on over a period of 50 to 100 years.
0: Certainly. No, we're very like-minded with regards to that. My concern with that is that there is already a considerable disconnect between even what hobbyist artificial life developers are doing, to a lesser extent the artificial life academic community, and the way the general public see this technology. And this disconnect is problematic even for things like paleontological research in terms of finding private funders, oil barons, these kind of people that may have some interest in dinosaurs. And I think it it's even more problematic for artificial life folk. So we either become like some underground religious cult that kind of passes on documents and open source format and maintains our own ca- kind of communication layer, which is the way it is currently. I mean, let's let's <laughs> let's call the spade a spade or there needs to be some means to actively communicate and contribute to a greater intellectual community. I reflect on theoretical physics, because it was one of my primary areas of study at university, that they were very good at taking extraordinarily abstract concepts and making them part of popular culture remarkably rapidly. It did require particularly charismatic characters that were already in the public eye, but they were also very good at communicating with people that were in the public eye and kind of evangelising the ideas so it would become part of kind of the popular consciousness and self-maintaining as well. And I think this is really, to come full circle back to the original point of discussion, I think this is really the problem for contemporary artificial life developers is how do you actively, as you say, in one sense appreciate that it is going to be a number of decades to you know a century-long project but at the same time continue to percolate the ideas internally and let them come out externally so you don't have a situation where when you talk to someone who is educated and part of the computer science, computer engineering community about artificial life, they immediately revert back to cellular automata and these kind of things. So this is a very dynamic problem, I think, and one that merits ongoing discussion. But on a completely different topic... The original reason that I decided to call you, and this is why I think we should continue to record these conversations for for no other reason, is that you emailed me possibly three or four weeks ago about your own interest in starting perhaps a hobbyist, perhaps an academic, perhaps a hobbyist academic artificial life project yourself. And you emailed me initially to get ideas about what kind of directions I thought, who you thought you should approach, these kind of things. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and thank you, Tom, for allowing me to to uh,
1: give uh, the, this plug for the project. The project, basically, uh, for many years, uh, NASA's been funding us to build an open source uh, framework to do mission simulation, and it's built up out of some pretty cool components. Ogre 3D, which is a, an open source community-built scene graph It supports OpenGL and Direct3D and the whole bit, um, and it keeps getting updated. It has a vibrant community behind it. Um, OpenAL, which is a sound library, CE GUI, which is a two-dimensional GUI widgets library. We also have uh, the ODE, the Open Dynamics Engine physics engine. We actually built a general-purpose plug-in to allow uh, any physics engine to be put into the platform, even if it's commercial, uh, because physics was so important. And it has... MySQL underneath it, and it has a Python wrapper around it so that you can script every single thing, every object in the scene graph can be scripted and accessed by Python. Every function, every method is accessible by Python. Python 2.5 is where we're at. So it's utilizing elements of the the modern gaming industry, which is the Python scripting and all the, the 3D architecture, with the open source academic side, which is ODE, with the hobbyist world of 3D, which is Ogre 3D. So it's, it's kind of a hybrid, uh, very well architected by Peter Newman and the team in Australia. Plug-in architecture, scripting, XML interface, the, the whole bit, and we've done about 25 projects in it for, for NASA and for other agencies. So it's very, very solid. The downloads of the thing, Without Python, you're looking at a six to seven megabyte download for the entire uh, standalone player architecture and just a few meg to download this and unpack the scene. So it's incredibly lightweight, it's a very, very small small client. And with Python, it's a bit more. It's about 13 megabytes package. And the, the idea behind it and what Peter's doing right now is he's hurrying up. We've got a deadline of August to uh, get are kind of drop dead on code. We're doing our 1.0 release uh, early this fall, like September, and the 1.0 release will be all documented. And um, other people have built stuff in Python in the platform, but this will now be release code uh, that you can get at digitalspaces.net. That's the plural of digital space. Digitalspaces.net. It's, it's available. The .85 version I think is there now. Um, but the idea was to build an industrial strength. Uh, funded, a 3D platform that had all the goodies that people generally want, and then put it out there for general use, industrial stuff, the mining industry will probably pick it up, and we did a number of projects about underground mining equipment moving around in tunnels, but that this also would be a very potent platform, kind of a base operating system, if you will, for people wanting to do artificial life experimentation. A little bit like Brevi, I was, I would expect. So we might be in danger of being similar or identical something like Brevi. I don't really know. But I do know that, that you know, several years and quite a bit of government funding uh, went into this thing, and it's very, very solid. And so my dream is that a, somebody interested in art, hyper-evolution, artificial life uh, from this committee will emerge and contact us, and we'll... We'll work together to try some experiments in the platform that's what it was built for
0: but what you're really looking for is a kind of artificial life killer app and my understanding from our communication three four weeks ago was that you personally were actually looking to to start this seed idea and create a new artificial life application
1: yeah if, if it can be found it might be as, as you've we've both agreed upon it might be something to do and in, in evolving innovative robotics and industrial engineering project, it could be that, in fact, you want to simulate uh, the physics of the activities inside a cell, which is, of course, uh, currently way beyond the compute capacity we see out there. Uh, but to simulate an entire cell and all the the, the, camp, the catalytic reactions and everything that's going on there, um, you know, who knows? But uh, there's Probably something out there that is both fundable. Maybe it isn't a game, uh, but it's it's a fundable activity that can keep a platform like Digital Spaces at, at the current edge and keep it funded and keep people working on it. The, the metaphor that I'm using it's a loose metaphor, but when Linus Torvalds wrote Linux in in uh, I think 89, 90, 91, that time frame, uh, as a student in Finland. You know, he just he was cranking out. He was making a good, solid Linux kernel for an Intel, uh, IBM-compatible PCs. And gradually, over time, uh, a group of people surrounded him and downloaded the code. He released it under the early GPL, and they gradually evolved it collectively until uh, it was powerful enough that that a community of the bigger. So you had this kind of snowball effect where more and more people downloaded and used it. And it was a common platform, and then kernels got updated, and levels got updated, and then it got adopted by an IBM, um, you know, and all the bigger players. And so is it, certainly there was a crying need for a Unix on a PC that was both free and, and capable. Um, there probably isn't as big a need for a competent artificial life a platform, simulation platform,
0: but there is a need, there is a niche for it. Here's the thing, Bruce, and uh, I mean, I think if John Klein produced t shirts, I would certainly wear them. I think Breve, the source code is already there. John Klein has put in a lot of work to reach out to the academic community. He's produced tutorials and, and papers, as you've probably seen, to get academics using Breve, and yet he hasn't, whilst he's doing incremental updates, he hasn't done any major updates that have altered the platform too greatly in the past three years. What I would implore you and your team to do is download the Brevet source code, download the tutorials, and look at the overlap. Because my feeling is what could come out of this, what you guys have, is physics, dynamic environments, all these kind of interactive components, and probably a higher level graphics engine. And what John Klein has in Breve is a legacy of outreach to the academic community particularly in the kind of New England area but also expanding I think he has Scandinavian users and things like that relatively robust language so you would probably have to pull out the the Python other bits and pieces and put Steve in there although he does have an interface through Java I believe but also C++ and just look at the overlap look at the vein of these two projects and create something out of that then. What strikes me in particular, looking at Framsticks and what Gerald is doing, Breve and what Gerald is doing, Breve and what you're doing, is that there is a good deal of overlap, and what it will take, and I've been in communication as well with John Klein, although we don't necessarily overlap with regards to what I do at Nodlake and what he does in Breve, is there's just a great need for someone to take the first step, basically and I think particularly what you're talking about, all the feature set that you have in digital spaces is needed in Brevet, and what Brevet has is what you need in terms of having existing killer apps, having existing Carl Sims Blocky Creatures, Evolution, all built into it. And all that needs to happen is some kind of jiggling in terms of somewhere in the kind of you know, block diagram of how the technology is grouped together in order to get some really good hybrid out of that. Now, I've looked at the Brevet code. I've looked at the Brevet code specifically with regards to Noble Ape, but I've also looked at the Breve code because I've recommended it to, to friends who are writing screensavers, because obviously Brevet also gives you screensavers, which may be a technology that you want to have as well, in terms of the whole original view with Darwin at Home, which went on to become Biota at Home. But I think all this technology is there, it's just a matter of uh, your team getting in contact with John or just downloading the source code and starting tinkering and just looking at where the overlaps lie, because the feature set that you've described if you go back to the John Klein interview in the Biota Feed, is exactly the feature set that John Klein was talking about implementing in the next version of Brevet, which I'm pretty sure he hasn't gotten into the depth that you guys have, particularly with regards to physics and uh, dynamic visualisation environments that you folk are, are obviously experts in. So, I mean, that's the way I see it in terms of a, a distinct overlap. And through these podcasts, I've tried to, and every time I talk to Gerald both publicly in these podcasts and privately over email, I try to reiterate that there is a lot of overlapping technology there, and ideally the Framsticks folk as well. I'm not sure what what kind of communication you've had with, with Marche, but I think there's a good overlap with regards to Framsticks too, and they need the dynamic environments part. They need all the stuff that you've got in that side. So I think the components are there and they overlap, it's just a matter of some kind of unification to go in and take these these programs and, and make something kind of a gestalt that's greater than the, the combined parts in some regard. You know, this is um, this is perhaps the kernel of, of something
1: uh, fresh and exciting as I've seen in several years in this medium, which is I think uh, what you've identified in Gerald and the Framsticks folks and perhaps in digital spaces that we're a kind of a fourth or fifth class of people in this medium, which is the platform builders, where we built our platforms in the hopes that someone will show up and say, hey, this is a good general purpose environment. And what you're proposing, Tom, is actually get the, get the people with the platform vision together and say, if we combine our efforts and utilize our code, full staple mutilate the code, put it into a common platform, we can kind of attract more energy and create something that doesn't duplicate efforts. Uh, maybe we ought to have some kind of physical gathering, or we got to have some kind of regular online gathering to talk about this, but perhaps you, by the very the very service you've done in these Biota podcasts, have come to the point where you said, hey, platform people, start communicating. Uh,
0: in my innate reality podcasts. I regularly muse about reaching out into academia. And within a kind of two-podcast cycle from musing that, I will always get an email from John Klein saying, have a look at this tutorial that I've done, or here's an example that I've done there. And I think John Klein's ability to reach into the academic community and find a group of people that are now teaching courses with Brevet and now have a stock set of simulations that they're already using through the Steve interface, means that he is the, the go-to guy currently in terms of everything to do with uh, killer apps or reaching out to academia or these kind of things. So really it's a matter of putting your team and John together initially. What I would recommend first, however, is just downloading the source code and documentation and perusing that and then working from that kind of educated viewpoint with regards to your communication back to job. The the main concern that I've had, and when I talked to Gerald, there are two kinds of mentalities here, even within the folk that are creating systems. And the first is a kind of comfort zone, and then there is a movement out of the comfort zone. And for me personally... I I live in constant iterations of uncomfortableness in terms of the way the code has been bombarded and various other things. So I don't necessarily have a similar comfort zone in that sense. But I would implore your team in particular to check out spiderland.org, have a look at John Klein's code, have a look at the tutorials. Get a sense of the academic institutions, even in the Massachusetts area, but also extending out through New England, up to Scandinavia, various other locations. I'm sure John will give you the current summary of schools currently using Breve. And get a sense of what benefit that would give you folk in terms of what you're doing and also what benefit you can iteratively feed back. Similarly, Framsticks. Framsticks, maybe not quite as much initially, but I think once you have a hybridisation between Breve and what you guys are doing... Framsticks will be a no-brainer in terms of the integration. But I think, you know, once we have this kind of killer platform together, then folks such as Daryl and myself, perhaps the Framsticks guys to a lesser extent, other folks that are just coming out currently with regards to their own development, even Jeffrey Ventrella. I mean, Jeffrey Ventrella has been the the standard with regards to not releasing things open source so far. But I think if we get a hybridised platform together and, as you say, perfectly, it is a matter of getting the systems folk together, getting them percolating, and getting the application developer folk involved, then I think, you know, we'll have something solid. But my concern, really, and this comes in talking to all of you, is, as you say, I have this kind of overview look where I talk to you personally, get excited about what each of you is doing, but I also see that there are overlaps that need to be broken down and things need to be made whole, and this moves out of the comfort zone into the kind of broader, forward-looking movement. So I don't know whether this comes out of an abstract project. Certainly, when you and I and Dave Kerr were talking about this two years ago and the kind of moon monkeys percolation, there was almost a need to divorce ourselves from our respective projects and create a new project. And this may be something that you think about as well with your group with John Klein, with Gerald, with the Framsticks folk. I mean, when, when it comes together or whether there is a way to have a shared platform. But I think all this is coming in the future. So it's, it's been a wonderful opportunity to talk to you here, Bruce, with regards to this. I think we've we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. Probably it's best that we leave it open unless you have any parting words.
1: I just uh, want to say this has uh, been quite a marathon, and we've, we've covered... This is probably the greatest conversation I've had on the full scope of both the challenges, the issues, and the opportunities in, in artificial life. And I, I thank you again. You know, It wouldn't be possible without you, Tom.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I always want to deprecate my own involvement and just think that there is a common need with regards to this and that someone would have to do it eventually. So uh, I, I, I just have the, the privilege of the ability to talk to you all. So thank you very much for, for your contribution as well, Bruce. It's very well needed.
1: Thank you, Tom. You're most welcome. Hmm.